we can think of our practice, our practice as a a journey. And the Buddha used this, you know, through the path analogy, really. And it's, at one point, uh, I heard Stephen Batchelor reflect on this notion of path. And it was meaningful to me to think about that. You know, what, I- what a path is. A path is created by people who walk in the same area over and over again. It leaves that, that mark, that trail for us, a path. When I was in the Peace Corps, I was in a country in the South Pacific. Things grow very quickly there. And um, I went to visit some friends who lived in very remote areas of the islands. And we took a journey across the island. And uh, we had a guide. And so we followed the guide. And as we went, he actively was clearing the path. As far as I could tell, there was no path to follow. But he seemed to know where to go. And he had his machete, his bush knife, and he was whacking down some of the plants. And, and one of my, 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 my um, fellow volunteers said, yeah, it looks like they're just whacking down plants, but y- when you watch them, you see actually you know, they'll just chop, chop. It looks like they're just kind of indiscriminately chopping plants down in the path, but then there'll be some time where they stop and they um, they kind of clear out an area around a particular plant and mark it off. You know, this plant, we need to keep this plant. We need to, you know, protect this plant. Um, and so, you know, kind of a recognition of the skillfulness of some growth. And so, you know, following, following him, following our, our leader, we could find our way on the journey. And he was actively clearing as he went. This is kind of, in a way, I think, of what the Buddha did. He found the way and began clearing the path, offering, offering some teachings, offering a direction, And as more and more people walk a path, the easier it is to follow it, even without somebody in front of you to follow. That, that kind of um, 
we are the beneficiaries of many, many, many people having walked the path before. And so as a journey, thinking about our spiritual quest as a journey, it's useful to understand our direction, have well, to have a guide and perhaps to have some suggestions about good tools to take on the journey. There are uh, so many different descriptions of ways the path unfolds. We talked about one earlier in the retreat the, through the simile of the cloth analogy, that being one kind of unfolding. And another, I mean the, the Eightfold Path is another description of that unfolding. There's different ways to talk about the journey, different ways to talk about how do we walk this path? Where are we going and how do we, how are we while we are walking the path? Because they're not actually so different. In, in one sutta, the Buddha offers a, another version of this path through um, what are called the four resolves. And they also kind of lay out, they both lay out a map kind of of the journey of where you start and how you engage, and they also seem to describe qualities <coughs> that grow in our hearts while we walk the path. And so it's almost as if this map is both a description of the destination and <coughs> and the journey, both. And so resolve, this word resolve, the word is translating Pali Aditana, which uh, Something like um, standing firmly. You 
is a translation, to stand firmly. So translations, determination, resolve, maybe commitment. So it's a quality of heart in a way, that quality of connection to something deeply meaningful. And these four resolves also point us kind of in a direction. It's like this is the direction we're headed. And so the four, oh, it's also translated as foundation. Um, I think Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this term as foundation. That one isn't so resonant for me. For me, the, it, 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 connecting to the, the heart quality of the heart that has that sense of, this is my path. This is the direction for the heart. It's like a compass setting our, charting our course. And so these four resolves. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate relinquishment and train for peace. Wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace. And we can see them as a kind of a, you know, in the, in the overview as a kind of a step by step, we start hearing some kind of teaching of wisdom pointing us towards the truth. And that truth in this context is pointing us to letting go, to understanding the truth of suffering created through greed, aversion, delusion, that letting go of those creates the conditions for peace. And so we hear some wisdom that points us in the direction of truth that inclines us to letting go, leading to peace. So in a way that that we can think of these four, wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace as being a kind of a steps on the journey tools for the journey. And we can also reflect on them perhaps as priorities for our practice. Again, it's pointing us kind of like like our compass. It's or or, you know, like the North Star. That direction. We find ourselves kind of heading off. It's like, no, that direction. Wavering. No, that direction. 
you know, our heart, it, and so again, you know, kind of the heart connection. This is the aim. This is, this is where we're heading. So we can consider them as priorities, as re- as and as resolves. I, I, you know, thinking of the word resolve itself. Maybe the one of the certainly for myself the one of the main ways I connected with that word before I met the practice. Well, there are a couple of ways. First, there was the you know the the New Year's resolution. You know that was the main way people talked about resolution resolve was that oh what are your New Year's resolutions and. Uh, you know, we may think of them as, okay, setting some kind of a goal there. And what often happens with New Year's resolutions, you know, you have that idea, but then you don't stay connected with it. Countless New Year's resolutions last a few days, maybe a few weeks. And then we forget. And so a resolution, a resolve, I think, needs to be held in mind. We need to remember the direction over and over again, remind ourselves. It's not it's not a one-time deal in terms of the saying, oh, that, that's what I want to do. Every day, every moment we can remember, we have to remind ourselves this direction because our habits of mind are going to take us elsewhere. I think also for myself, the the notion of resolve before I really understood it in terms of this practice was uh, it's a thought, an idea that is a good idea maybe you know but it, but it, it was in the realm of the cognitive and didn't really connect to the heart and you know for many of the kind of new year's resolution type things that i made they were more like oh that sounds like a good idea but there was the lack of heart connection to that aim that direction. And for me that heart connection is partly where the juice comes in, where the where the you 
the the heart has a way of resonating with something in a nonverbal way. And then this is, you know, distinguishing heart and mind in our Western sense. In the you know, in the Buddhist understanding they're not separate, but definitely in my experience here and growing up in the United States, heart and mind seem very different. And I engaged a lot from this mind perspective. And there's a, a way in which when the heart is engaged, the whole being can commit. And it's a whole being commitment needed for this path. This is, this is not an easy path. And so in some ways, too, I think resolves or this kind of commitment as an aim and direction. It's, it's, uh, it's shaping our direction for our lives over the arc of our lives, maybe over the arc of multiple lives. And so it's, the heart also has to have some patience with it. It's pointing us in a direction. And then we take the step and the next step. And then we may check again, am I in heading in the direction? With each step actually, yes, this is the direction. And yet the direction I think as the heart is really connected to that aim, that purpose, that direction, just being on the path the heart delights in that. So that knowing this yeah, I that the being is headed in the direction, headed in this direction. And so it's kind of got this overarching notion of heading us in a direction. And yet the choices we make, the, the only place choice happens about this next step is now. And so our, our intentions, our, our resolves, our direction, our priorities essentially shape our choices here and now in the moment how we choose to make that next step. What choice do we make? Do we orient towards wisdom? When we have a choice, sometimes we are caught by our delusion. And in that time, delusion is making our choices for us. Aversion is making our choices. Greed is making our choices. And yet we will wake up and recognize, oh, wow, come back to the direction. And that's where the heart commitment can help us in that moment to choose the path again.
One day, not too long ago, I was washing dishes in my kitchen and my sink. And as I was doing that, there was a flash of impatience in the mind. I don't remember what happened. Maybe some particular spot of food, <laughs> not wanting to scrub off or something. So a flash of impatience in the mind. And there was a moment of recognizing, reflecting, this this might be my last moment on earth. Is this how I want to spend my last moment on earth with this impatience? Something in the mind just oriented back to that direction, a direction towards wisdom, truth, letting go, and peace. And so we can consider these resolves not only as a direction, you know, but also as moment to moment helping us with what are our priorities here and now? How do I want to live this life? some reflections on each of these four resolves, each of these four aspects. And the action that's associated with each one, we should not neglect wisdom. We should preserve the truth, cultivate relinquishment, and train for peace. So I think of not neglecting wisdom. It's got many levels to it. You know, wisdom has the the Buddha's uh, the one place in the suttas. The there's an expression of three levels of wisdom. I don't think I've explicitly mentioned this in here. That three levels or three forms of wisdom, perhaps the the wisdom. Suttamaya Panya, the wisdom that comes from hearing. Sutta means to hear. Panya is wisdom. Suttamaya Panya, the wisdom of hearing or reading, of, of, of receiving information from wise beings. Just that taking in the information. This, this should not me be neglected <laughs> to put ourselves in the space of wisdom teachings, to hear the teachings, to reflect on the teachings. The reflecting on the teachings is the next level, Chintamayapanya. So we hear teachings, we hear craving in the mind is how suffering comes to be. 
And maybe we need to hear more than that. We need to ask some questions, think about it, reflect on it. And so there's a, a kind of an engagement with the thinking about it, massaging it in our in our minds. So our cognitive mind has to pick this up and and massage it. And and does it make sense? I think I told a little bit of the story of my early uh, days in practice when, you know, I really did come to this practice through suffering. Uh, that was truly a condition for me to step on the path. And uh, a friend, I was in pretty deep suffering, and a friend sent me a book. Actually, Chris, my dear friend Chris, sent me a book. And it uh, spoke to me in some way. So there was the Suttamayapanya, hearing, hearing the teachings. And then began to reflect on it. And that part didn't yield too much, actually. Didn't, didn't get how this practice worked. But the book said that it did work. And my friend said, hey, this has really helped me. And so that part I was willing to trust. And so that's, that was my reflection. Somebody I trust says this has helped them, so I'm willing to try it. And so that created the conditions for essentially beginning to engage, to step on the path, to engage with the wisdom teachings. And this is also a piece of Chintamayapanya that we actually pick up the teachings and apply them begin to, okay, this is what anger feels like. Wow, okay, that's unpleasant. So the, uh, we start to engage in that way. And then with that engagement, with continued engagement, we, we, we begin to understand and recognize in our own experience something of the truth of these teachings. I began in my early uh, practice, after having read that book and just begun to apply within a few weeks, I began to directly experience benefits. This, essentially, was the beginning of seeing wisdom at work directly in my own practice. Seeing that, not just, you know, take it in intellectually, think about it, experiencing the benefits of that wisdom coming through the practice. And so I think of the, um, you know, in the four resolves that wisdom is at the head of these, points to that we have to hear some wisdom to put us on the path. You know, the the transcendent dependent origination, I I said, you know, for suffering to head in that direction, wisdom needs to meet it. And so this is, this is kind of a pointing to that. Wisdom lies at the beginning of the path. And yet, there are different forms it takes as we walk on the path. 
Sometimes it's it's um, hearing about it, just kind of sitting in the field of the Dharma. Sometimes it's reflection, and sometimes it's the direct experience of wisdom. So we need to engage for this wisdom to bear fruit, for this wisdom to uh, to step on the path. We have to walk on the path, I guess I could say that. It's an active, active practice. In the sutta that I, um, that this particular set of result with this teaching comes from. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya 140, and I'll I'll post that. There's a kind of many, many paragraphs, and I I have it here, but I'm probably not going to read too much of it, or any of it maybe, for the sake of brevity, but I will paraphrase pieces of it. And in the section on, and what does it mean to not neglect wisdom? There's kind of three levels there of what it means to not neglect wisdom. And again, there are different descriptions of how a path unfolds. This particular teaching is being given to one person, this one lucky person who stumbled upon the Buddha in a potter's shed one night and did not recognize the Buddha, but sat down, they sat down and meditated together. And it's a beautiful image, actually, because they're sitting in this potter shed, you know, late at night, and the Buddha sees something in his, uh, the person who's sitting with him, and has the sense that this person has some capacities, you know, senses the depth of his concentration, and so he decides to say, friend, who is your teacher? And he says, Oh, this recluse Gautama is my teacher. <laughs> and and the Buddha says, Oh, have you ever met this this Gautama? He says, No, <laughs> I haven't. And uh, and the Buddha didn't say who he was, but he offered him instead a teaching. And through that teaching he realized he was sitting in front of the Buddha. Um, and so that's a delightful image for this, for this teaching. And so again, this, this teaching was given to a single person and it's kind of said that the Buddha understood just, just the right direction to send somebody. You know, what is it that they can meet in that moment? And so, you know, this teaching is one version of the unfolding of the path. You know, th- there's another one that was offered in, in the simile of the cloth, you know, slightly different perspective. That one began with the defilements and recognizing, you know, the stains and understanding the stains. This one begins with elemental experience, understanding direct elemental experience. And so my sense is the Buddha had a sense, this person's already pretty concentrated, you know, they don't need to hear anything about the hindrances right now. Go right to know the arising of earth element, know the arising of air element. So he went right to that. He went right to direct experience. 
So that was the first part of it, pointing to direct experience. Again, underneath the level of concept. This was the wisdom. Don't ne- we, we do not neglect wisdom by meeting direct experience. And then the next part of it was, in some ways, it was a pointing to a kind of a blend of, to me, at least the way I read it, is a blend of reflection and direct experience. Maybe I will read this part. And so for each of the elements, in this case six elements, earth, air, fire, water, space, and consciousness, so it's an expanded version of the elements, for each of the elements. And um, the air element should be understood simply as air element. So that's the direct seeing. And should be seen as it actually is yata bhuta. Should be seen as it has come to be, as it actually is, with proper wisdom. And then it's in quotes. Basically, think. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And so to me that indicates a kind of a bringing, consciously bringing wisdom in to meet experience. This is using reflection, using that chintamaya panya to help us to meet experience. And then... The third part, the third pointing, is towards conditionality, which we've been exploring a lot of. As we engage, as we practice the wisdom teachings, recognizing they're not just simply meant to go in to our thinking and be thought about, but engaged with, and we do experience some wisdom directly for ourselves. And this is, this. I think this is also a useful reflection. Many times in the, in the meetings I've been, you know, pointing out you know, when something, when you see something, I'll say, that's wisdom. That's wisdom at work. Recognizing when Wisdom is working, supports faith, supports being on that path, helps us to, it helps us with that hard commitment to this direction of wisdom. Because when we see wisdom at work, there's usually a sense of some kind of release of space, Something that our heart kind of recognizes, yes, this is the way. And so acknowledging that, connecting to that is very supportive for us on this path. It's kind of like if we're, if we're wandering, you know, in the, in the woods following a path and maybe it gets a little thin at places and then we come out on a place where it's clear again. It's like, ah, yes, this, this is the path. I know I'm on the path. 
And this path is directed towards what is the truth? Aiming towards the truth of experience, I would say. What is the truth of our experience? And this is, again, what what the Buddha is pointing to here in this particular text. What is the direct experience? And so it's not about some conceptual truth or some idea about the nature of the universe. My understanding of the truth the Buddha pointed to was not about naming something true about what's out there, but rather pointing to the truth of experience. And this truth of experience is that experience is impermanent, unreliable, not self. The the teaching here says one should preserve the truth. And there's another place in the text where it actually gives a little expanded teaching on what it means to preserve the truth. And this is also interesting because very often in, at the time of the Buddha, um, people liked to make declarative statements about the nature of reality. the, the, The world is infinite. This is what's true. The world is finite. This is what's true. This, this kind of just statement about like ontological reality, the beingness, what is, what is out there. And the Buddha, the Buddha says, well, he was often pointing to those kind of beliefs as, you know, oh, those are beliefs. Can you say from your direct experience, you know that's truth? How are you getting that information? And, um, you know, sometimes <laughs> one thing that well, most of the time people were um, saying, well, my teacher says it's that way, or the tradition, the tradition says it that it's that way. Um, and yet sometimes people would say, my meditative experience says it's that way. And um, the Buddha actually pointed to the beliefs that come through what we experience in meditation as being some of the most pervasive and difficult beliefs to recognize as beliefs. Partly because we've experienced something and it feels so, so true. And it is true, this was the experience. And that's what the Buddha points to in terms of preserving truth. He says, when one has faith in something, one preserves truth by saying, my faith is thus. Or when one has uh, accepted something based on reflectively thinking about it, one, one ec- preserves the truth by saying, this is what I have come to understand through reflecting on it. 
We could also say, one could preserve the truth by saying, this was the experience in meditation. Rather than saying, only this is true, anything else is wrong. This was the experience. This is, this is the pointing to um, preserving the truth. It's like that blind people and the elephant story. A meditative experience might be like touching the leg of the elephant. Yes, that was the experience. There is a truth to that experience. Cannot, cannot um, say, you know, you can say, yes, that, that was the experience. The experience felt like that. So there's a kind of a truth. There's a truth to the direct experience of it. That was what was arising. That was what was felt. That was what was known. But to extrapolate from that and saying, and that's the way it is. That's what the Buddha pointed to. Not useful. And so, this is some of the ways that delusion enters in, and delusion deceives us into thinking we know something as truth when it is belief. And also, I find this to be a very useful tool in meditation. I've pointed to this for quite a few of you around what is being believed? Delusion, I think, operates in the realm of belief. And exposing belief as belief, I mean, delusion is taking what it believes to be truth. And so this training around preserving the truth is, is acknowledging, oh, this is being believed right now. That is a truth. In that moment, this belief is arising in this moment. That's preserving the truth of experience. We don't have to convince ourselves to not believe it, but to acknowledge it as belief. That begins to uh, undermine delusion. I think this practice requires a deep commitment to honesty about when we are bringing beliefs in. This is, we, we need to continually, it's a, it's a continual kind of stripping and what's being believed and what's being believed. There's one place which Later in this sutta, it says, that is true which has an undeceptive nature. Not deceived about the nature of experience being impermanent, unreliable, not self.
cultivating relinquishment, the next resolve. Again, the, the pointing wisdom leads us to inclining towards seeing the truth of the way clinging, craving, creates suffering in our minds. And the natural um, movement as wisdom strengthens there is for the letting go, the relinquishment to happen. And yet we have to cultivate relinquishment still. We've talked about this. This is a big part of our practice. Recognizing when we're, when we're caught and at times using tools to help us not be so quite so stuck to something. Times when we actively let go. We are essentially exploring relinquishing the habits of greed, aversion, and delusion. We talked about abandoning in the uh, earlier teaching on the simile of the cloth. One abandons the stains and how that abandonment ultimately I mean, the, the, the deeper abandonment, the deeper relinquishment happens not through doing the relinquishment, but because wisdom has strengthened to the point where wisdom lets go. Wisdom releases the greed, aversion, and delusion. And so these, these resolves work together the foundation of wisdom kind of starting us off, <laughs> pointing us to the truth, and then supporting and, and actually kind of let the water running downhill, uh, you know, that image of the water running downhill, wisdom leads us to relinquishment. It's a great delight <laughs> to see that. And that relinquishment, that release, leads to peace. Some of you have talked about that, that release you know, just the, the feeling of that space, the understanding of how the mind has let go of something, put a burden down. That's, that's sometimes the feeling with that relinquishment. The feeling of of release and peace is, wow, that was a heavy burden. It's not being carried anymore. So there's a kind of a, 
the felt sense of that. There's a peacefulness to that release. And we do recognize, sometimes we recognize that that release or that peace is partial peace. We see that sometimes we can see as something releases, it's kind of like, it's almost like, you know, the, you're living in the smoke, living in the, the fog, the smoke, and, you know, you can't see very far. And you know, maybe you can see a few, you know, when it's really bad, you might be able to see a few, few yards, but you can't see past that. And as it begins to clear, you can see further and there's an understanding of the letting go or the, the clearing that's happened there. The feeling of, of, of not being stuck or, or, or being able to see you know, further out. And in being able to see further out, there's the understanding. Wow, and there's a lot more to go. So... In the sutta we talked about the other day, the simile of the cloth, it said, when one understands the, the stains have been released in part, confidence arises in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And that in part, I think, you know, that in part is, is what I'm pointing to here, that we, we recognize a release and still recognize there's more something is not released. I was kind of pointing to that last night and the reflection of, oh, that has been released. Oh, and what disturbance remains? So that the, it's onward leading in that way. There's, there's some clearing and then we can see further and then there's more clearing. I think too, in our practice, there can be deeper and deeper understandings of peace in this way. This morning in my sitting here, this morning, I was experiencing some disturbance and knowing it experiencing the release, experiencing wisdom, releasing, feeling the ease of heart, the peace of that, and a pleasantness. And then recognizing that what was going on was that there was a kind of almost, um, there was another, another little disturbance. And and then the wisdom released that. And then another little disturbance and wisdom released that. And then there was the understanding in a way that the deepest peace that the mind was connecting with at that point was the experience of release. That putting down of the burden. And it was almost as if the mind was creating burdens to put down. 
And then the question arose, what is it like when the burden is not picked up? What is it when there's none arising of suffering? And it didn't quite, there was a, there was a kind of a flavor of an understanding there, but not an experience. But it was inspiring to recognize. It was like that, that the recognition was, oh, there's a deeper kind of peace there. There's a deeper peace than that release. And that, I was like, training for peace. The heart kind of, like, this is a, this is a direction. There was a trust in that direction for practice. And so to me, these resolves or these commitments, direction, they, uh, they are both kind of pointing the direction and they become how we live the path. And this is pointed to in this, in this teaching where it says someone who is free possesses these foundations. Or my understanding of what that means is someone who is awakened, fully awakened, is living these foundations. They are, they are the natural ground, natural so they, they, they shift from being a direction to just being what's lived. We live wisdom, truth, relinquishment, or maybe it's the not picking up and peace. That's, that's, that's what's being lived. And so that points to me of how the path, our direction, and the goal, so the, the path being what we're doing and the aim, where we're headed, that they reflect each other. How we walk the path reflects where we are headed. And so, to become wise, we practice wisdom. <coughs> to live truthfully, we cultivate and preserve truth. To live peace, 
we practice peace. So they both point our direction and express the life of freedom. And partly I bring this up at this time in the retreat because it's easy in some ways to have this kind of resolve while we're here. But we need to remember this direction every day of our lives. harder. It's harder (laughs) out there. It is. And yet, we can know we're on the path in whatever we are doing. Whether we're washing dishes, talking on the phone, driving a car, sitting in meditation, having a conversation with a partner. The path is available. Let's sit for a moment. Mm 